Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey. Here with me in the studio is our producer, Aurora. Hello. And today I have a very special guest for you. He's uh, one of my influences learning acupuncture and a stand-up human being, Jack Daniel. He taught me when I was studying acupuncture uh, way back in the, the early 90s and uh, just learned so much from him. I think you'll enjoy listening to him. So, Aurora, please tell us a little bit more about Jack. Jack Daniel, who's been practicing acupuncture for 40 years, graduated from the University of Connecticut with a degree in biochemistry. After that, he started studying acupuncture, receiving his license in 1973 and qualifying for the Master of Acupuncture with the College of Traditional Acupuncture in 1979. In 1975, he co-founded the Center for Traditional Acupuncture, now known as the Maryland University of... Integrated Health. Of Integrative Health. He served as lead faculty for the Traditional Acupuncture Institute's California programs for seven years until 1988, where he served as Dean of Students and Director of Alumni Affairs. He was named Teacher of the Year in 2003. His teaching infuses theory with clarity, wisdom, and common sense practicality. His guiding principle to unify the realms of the emotional, physical, and spiritual inspires his teaching and deepens understanding for students in his courses. Thanks, Aurora. And here's my good friend, Jack Daniel. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. I'm thrilled to have you with me this evening. Thank you. And I know you fairly well. You were... One of my teachers when I studied acupuncture, but for the people who don't know you, well, you've been doing acupuncture for 40 years, more than 40 years now. And how did you stumble across acupuncture? Because nobody back then even knew what acupuncture was. It, it all began really with an introduction to uh, the ideas of yin and yang and Chinese medicine when I was still in college. So I guess I was 20. And I'm now going to, I'm about to turn 66. So that's a long time ago. Um, and it was actually an introduction from Michio Kushi, who was the sort of East Coast proponent of macrobiotics back then. And he said something that really struck a chord. Now I was working on a undergrad degree in chemistry and biology. Actually, it was a double major, which my my advisor and I finagled into being the first and probably only Bachelor of Arts degree in biochemistry from the University of Connecticut. And, you know, biochemistry is pretty complicated stuff. And it there was some part of me that just it never made sense to in a certain way because of the complexities. Like, who can possibly figure out all of these little sidetracks to the metabolic pathways in such a way to have any kind of mastery? So when he said the following, I was hooked at some level. He said, if you understand yin and yang, you can unlock the secrets of the universe. And, you know, I guess I was impressionable at the time or something, but I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And it wasn't until many years later that I really began to see that he had made a statement that was worth having been made. 
because I saw it play out in how I took care of my patients. I saw it, saw it play out in terms of the seasons. I saw it play out in terms of the forces that are at play in any kind of dynamic system, including organizations, for example, or the span of a lifetime. And it captured me so much that once I began to really grasp and begin to explore the depth of yin and yang and how to apply that in a daily life, I saw that it was a, that was a valid statement that he made. I went to acupuncture school to learn natural law in 1972 because I thought, okay, if I can learn natural law, I can be, I can live a good life. And I didn't, I didn't have any attention on or intention of being an acupuncturist. It just never entered my mind until we got to the part of the program, which was a clinical. And I said, oh, I get it. <laughs> You're actually supposed to use this to take care of people. <laughs> um, and, you know, I found that I had an aptitude for it. And uh, that was in early, very early 73. Um, so just as a, a time placement marker, uh, in 1971, in the summer of 71, Nixon went to China. And took this whole entourage, of course, of the press. And James Reston, who at the time was editor-in-chief of the New York Times, had an acute appendicitis attack. And they took his appendix out under normal means, you know, anesthetized him. And back in those days, I don't even think there was uh, laparoscopic surgery for an appendix. And um, so he had an open appendectomy. And he was in a lot of pain post-op. And they said, okay. Do you want to do acupuncture for the pain or you want drugs? And so he figured, well, while in China, it was the Chinese. So he said, let's do acupuncture. And he was so blown away by the experience that he wrote literally a front page editorial in the New York Times. Um, something like titled something like now about my appendectomy in Peking. That tells you how long ago it was still pronounced Peking in those days by the West. Um, so. I was in England at the time when I was in my studies and we decided to come back to the United States in late 74. And then we opened the clinic in Columbia, Maryland in May of 75. The rest, as they say, sort of is history. You know, so I'm in my 42nd year of practice. That's it's incredible. been a great ride. That's incredible. It's been, a, been a, a great career, an amazing career. Now then... Um, how, what's the transition from being a practitioner, which is one level, to being a, a teacher? And I realize that you do teach in the, in the treatment room, but teaching in front right, of a class right. is a totally different thing. Yeah, I, I can't really understand that very well. <laughs> um, I mean, um, I never thought for a minute that I had any aptitude for teaching, but, uh, my acupuncture teacher, J.R. Worsley, uh, sort of threw us in the deep end and had us teaching like teaching assistants when we were out of school for, I don't know, I think it was like eight months. Um, and after I got past myself, so to speak, you know, with, you know, ego, this and that, it was just a sheer joy to teach and to teach the material that I so believed in. Uh, so it grew and grew and I gradually left my ego behind and uh, became uh, a teacher that people appreciated what I had to do. And it's just been, you know, teaching has been a great experience for me. 
Good. Crafting ideas and delivering them so that people can grasp them and use them is just, that's, that's the other side of my career. Right. So you, you have a whole, you've developed a business. I remember when you started this, is it 15 years ago when you started? No, not that long. You mean the website? The website. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a distance learning, uh, e-commerce site. So I sell continuing education courses for my colleagues for their, their required continuing education credits state by state and also for their national certification. Um, the business is in its ninth year, I think. It went live January 1 of 06. So what's that? Yep. Ninth, ninth year. And there are 73 courses, online courses. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing catalog. And one of them caught my eye particularly. And it's a course that's open, as I understand, to lay people as well as acupuncturists. And it's called Trust, Forgiveness, and the Path to Peace. Yeah, that's actually a live course only. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a one-day course. And how that grew out, how that came was that it grew out of two things. One, that I saw people who were going through divorces, for example, with unbelievably crushed spirits because of breaches of trust. You know, the cruelty that one spouse can perpetrate on another spouse as the marriage dissolves is just beyond compare and the suffering that people go through. And I got to witness that, you know, as a, as a provider of care. Um, and I saw this trust as being an enormous issue for people because of course, if trust is breached once, it could be breached again. And a lot of times people are gun shy, rightly so in a, in a very real kind of sense. But it didn't have to be that way either. It didn't have to be that one shock of a broken trust had to determine the path of your whole life. So that was what I devised as that first half of the workshop. So it's a one-day workshop, it's three hours and three hours, and that's the whole morning is trust and forgiveness. Um, and the afternoon is another matter altogether. And the afternoon is really about the nature of the human mind and how people can live with their own mind in peace. Uh, you know, as I'm sure you're very aware, and many people are aware, um, many of the time that people have uh, a, a passenger that is hostile in their own mind, self-critical, self-judgmental, or even not even necessarily self-critical or judgmental, but just negative about the world or about this, that, or the other, or other people, and so on. And uh, people feel trapped by that. Uh, and I found a way to give people the opportunity to find their way to their own freedom and put it in a workshop. And, uh, it's, it works. And that's a grand thing. So that's going to form the basis of a book I'm in the process of writing. Oh, fabulous. About, about the nature of the human mind and how to have freedom. Do you have a title yet? I do. The title is a very strange title. Um, and people are going to think it's a ridiculous title in, on one hand. The title is Abracadabra. <laughs> I love it. But I'll tell you, Abracadabra is not some uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, declaration by a magician who's about to do, you know, some silly magic trick. Abracadabra actually is a combination of two Hebrew words, uh, and the two words are abara kadabra, and it means I create as I speak. Ah, 
No kidding. And so all of human cognition and, of course, the, the words that come out of people's mouths that are resultant from their cognition literally determine people's reality. I don't think anybody, any thinking person would say that it's anything other than that. You know, as an example of that, if I may, um, years ago, my wife and I went to see Pulp Fiction. Anybody seen Pulp Fiction? Fiction, you know, it's a very violent film, very uh, loud and, you know, in your face. But there's one particular scene that the tension is so thick in the theater that, and we were sitting in a full theater. So my wife was to my right, and there was this woman who sat down next to my left. And so between this woman to my left and myself, the angle of view to the screen was virtually identical. The sounds that were coming through the speakers were virtually identical. You know, basically we were in the same seat, so to speak, for the, for the viewing of this film. This scene comes up, and as the tension breaks, the whole audience bursts into the, you know, guffaws of laughter. This woman bounced out of her seat like she was on a rocket spring, bolted from the theater, and did not come back. Really? So wh what happened? Yeah. It's not in the it's not in the images. It's not in the sound. It can't be because we experienced the exact same thing, she and I. But for her, what she had stored in her mind and the rules for behavior, the tolerances for images, the story and narrative wrapped around what she had experienced in her life made that seem intolerable. Now, that's an enormous difference. And it's all inside. All inside. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. And that brings me to, I want to, I have two kind of areas of questioning. And to, to bring this to the Lyme community, uh, one of the areas that I find again and again where there's a lot of pain and suffering around trust and forgiveness, and it's almost as if it was a divorce too, is people get sick, they go to their physician, and they're told – they're failed, first of all, in just uh, the ability to diagnose Lyme and some of the other co-infections, A – and then once the doctor starts struggling with the diagnosis and treatment, they begin dismissing the patient just to get them out of their space because the physician doesn't have the capacity to deal with a complex, slow-healing, troublesome disease. And the pain and suffering that I see and hear about, uh, the, the stories are almost a template like, like uh, Pulp Fiction – it's, it's, you hear the same story, just there's slight different details. The costume's different yeah. or the setting's detailed, but it's all the same thing. And this, there's so much pain and anger in the community about this divorce from Western medicine. So what can you offer? Yeah, it, it, I, I tell you, I think it revolves around a couple of uh, crucial issues. One, whenever we present ourselves to a physician, we come as a supplicant. We come as someone who is in a state of need and looking to a physician of whatever stripe for assistant with, assistance with uh, the solution to that need. So there's already a power discrepancy, if you will, between the practitioner and the patient, and that's a natural state of affairs. That's, you're going to find that wherever for whatever illness or concern there is. However, the problem is that if 
desire can't, if there isn't a solution within the paradigm of thinking that the physician is employing, then the physician turns into a failure. And physicians don't take well to being failures. And that's probably true across the board of any system of medicine. I think it may be a little bit more magnified in, in allopathic medicine and Western medicine. But being a failure means that you have to get out of the situation because it becomes intolerant, intolerable rather. So by virtue of that, physicians can sometimes become intolerant of the lack of response. Uh, and they can be dismissive. Um, it, their hands are tied. You know, and I don't want to run a, a run a compassionate flag up the up the flagpole necessarily, but their hands are tied by their own paradigm. And if they don't understand certain things, or if they don't have the time to understand certain things, or they don't have the capacity to ask the right questions, or don't have the ability to provide the right solution, um, it's because of how their thinking is limited. So to extrapolate it back to pulp fiction. The narrative that a physician in Western medicine is living within precludes thinking certain things. It just can't allow for certain things to be thought. Uh, you know, the old, uh, to a carpenter, everything looks like a nail. Yes. So, you know, from a Western perspective, everything is histology, that is, you know, tissues and chemistry. And that's it. And those are the only two realms that they can traffic in. So if the tissues aren't in a pathological state and they can't find the chemical source for what is the driving force for whatever symptoms the patient's presenting, they're out of, they're out of tools. They're blind. They don't have, yeah, absolutely. They're blind. But it, and like I said, I'm not, I'm not here to run a compassionate flag up the flagpole, but they they don't have a choice to step out of themselves unless they have other schooling unless they can expand their narrative to include other perspectives. And look, let's face it, most most of the time when a person with Lyme presents herself or himself to a physician for a solution, they're already down the road somewhat, putting them into, into a state which is reasonably to, could, be, could be called chronic illness. And Western medicine is terrible for chronic illness, for addressing chronic illness. It's awesome for for doing things like if you've got some body part that if you keep it, it's going to kill you. Awesome. There's never been anything like it in the history of medicine in the world. Yeah, that's so true. Or if you have, if you have a broken bone, you know, that's been wrecked in a car, car accident. Fabulous. Fix it. Put it back together. Um, replacing body parts yeah. where possible. Yeah. There's, there's never been anything like it. Yeah, it's it's cool. awesome for yeah. that stuff. But for therapeutics, for long-term care, for chronic illness, it's awful. Usually makes more mischief than it solves. It's because of the paradigm. It's not because the physician is either cold-hearted or uh, impatient or things like that. It's like, uh, I don't know, this is a terrible analogy, but um, if, you any, if you remember the, the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I do. I don't know if you saw it. Of course. So there's, there's a character, Jessica Rabbit, this you know voluptuous woman who's married to Roger Rabbit. And she says, and I quote, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. <laughs> so, you know, the paradigm isn't bad. It just has limitations. Right. And extending those limitations beyond its own borders is, is a no-go. It can't be done. You know, by the same token, obviously, 
uh, even Chinese medicine, you know, doesn't reach every corner of the map of illness. No. It's awesome for chronic disease. It's probably one of the best in the world, in the history of the world. But it can't reach everything by any means. Uh, no, no system of medicine reaches everything. Um, now, the other, the other wild card, when people have developed lag disease, and it's been going on for some time, it's going to piggyback on, term, on top of whatever underlying pathologies have already been existing. And so you ha- now have multiply converging vectors of disease. And the, to tease apart the history and understand the dynamics of it is a very difficult thing and requires a great deal of patience and care. Yeah. Um, you know, fortunately, McKay, the way you and I were trained, we were trained to do that. Yeah. But not everybody is. It uh, There's a term for mathematics, uh, strange attractor. Are you familiar yeah. with that? Yeah. So yeah. that's Lyme disease is without a doubt a strange attractor and the just – Whatever is weak or diseased or ill, whether it's in a human being or within a system, Lyme disease, disease and maybe other chronic diseases too, bring that to a head, and they they all intersect, and it just can be one god awful mess. Right, absolutely. I mean, look, let's face it, Lyme disease didn't have any kind of uh, excuse the expression street cred as a diagnosis until very recently. Right. And because of that, the body of knowledge is sparse. Um, the seriousness is seriousness with which it's taken is, uh, light. And until, and unless more time passes or there's a more robust commitment to understanding and recognizing the dynamics of it, it's going to remain so and creep along slowly in an advancingly better state but it's been a slow go. So one of the things I find with uh, doctors who do come around, oftentimes there's a personal tragedy or or need that appears. And I find this true in in uh, nutritional medicine as well, which is another blind spot of, of Western medicine, that once the doctor has either a loved one or themselves go through a crisis that isn't addressed – all of a sudden they get curious and what what always amazes me is they dive into the the literature there's studies out there about this stuff but somehow it's blind to them when you talk about their paradigm you know they're just drawn that way but right then they're able to break through and get curious and bring in all this new knowledge but unless something like that happens it's very unusual to, to find a doc who has the time or the commitment to, to break through. Right. And part of that is, uh, comes as a function of the following. I learned something from a wonderful book called The Primacy of Caring, which is re- actually written by two PhD nurses. And uh, what they said was that um, everyone lives inside a web of concerns. It's a particular language they use. Uh, everyone lives inside a, a web of concerns. And if those concerns don't include paying attention to something like Lyme disease, um, it's outside their radar. Right. But as soon as somebody, like a, like a loved one, right. as soon as somebody, it draws their attention and it now is inside their web of concerns. And now they have the commitment to delve 
But until things are on the radar, now you could argue and say, well, anything that a patient brings to a physician should be inside their web of concern simply because the patient has it. That would be fine if all physicians were that compassionate, but they're not. Part of it's the system, you know, um, you know, everything from insurance to uh, the dictates of a heavy practice or whatever, um, you know, the amount of time to delve and really carefully research and really be a partner to a patient is not so common out there, unfortunately. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the way it is. It's, it's the way it's, yeah. it's the way it's drawn as, right. as now, if now somebody, can, as if somebody drew it, it just got organized. Right. Now, if we could, we can rail against that. That's one option. On the other hand, um, you know, accepting that it's that way and then seeking the resources that are going to be consistent with your own needs is really, that's the patient's responsibility. That's not the physician's responsibility. So if they let, can't provide it, then the patient needs to move on. They need to find the right physician. But that means being proactive, and it means not uh, succumbing to the indifference or inattention of a physician. Um, and it really means sort of upping the level of one's own commitment to one's own healing. So so let's talk about that. So I want to bring to a close the, the initial analogy of having a divorce with Western medicine. You finally come to the realization uh, that this this person isn't for me. This system isn't for me. I need to move on. And then you you talk about the second part of your course in that there's this path to peace in quieting down the mind. So how how does one get past the hurt and the pain and the anger and the frustration and the resentment to, to begin to do this. I mean, well, yeah, um, you can only vent so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, one of our, one of our colleagues who's a brilliant teacher, uh, Jeffrey Wen said, uh, you know, whatever you do, he was actually talking about cancer care, but, it applies. Um, whatever you do, tell your patients not to go to cancer support groups because mostly all they do is talk about their cancer. Um, so dwelling is not the answer. Um, and being resentful or angry or hostile is also not the answer. It's an, That's a further expenditure of energy that most people don't have when they've been dealing with chronic illness. Um, it, I guess the answer is that forgiveness, and really I guess it takes forgiving the system in a way, or forgiving a given physician if there's been a dead end that's thrown up, uh, revolves around a process. But it begins with a decision. Look, I'm going to put this aside. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to put this aside. Uh, aside. I'm, going to, I'm committed to freeing myself of the pain, particularly the emotional pain, of the disappointment and hurt, and the sense of being neglected or ignored and I'm going to move on. Uh, so look, the essence of it is as follows. Uh, if one has thoughts that recur that are unwanted or uninvited, unwelcome and are repetitive, it's not us that are thinking those because we like to hurt, hurt ourselves. It's a pattern in the mind 
that is in a, a, a patterned response or reaction to a set of conditions. And that's part of how the mind works because it has to have us have familiar uh, operating states in order to maintain a sense of who you who we are. We need to have a sustainable sense of identity. You know, I don't wake up in the morning and think as I look in the mirror, well, hello, hello, Robert Redford, good morning. <laughs> you know, I have a continuity of identity. I have the same person wakes up in the morning and I, that's who I am. Or at least that's an identity that is uh, bound in my own history. Uh, but that history can sometimes go on over time and take on a life of its own. And um, it doesn't mean that it's the repetitive thoughts, the unwanted thoughts, doesn't mean that whatever they're telling anybody is necessarily true. They're actual and real thoughts, but they're not about what's real. Because most of the time, uh, those kinds of thoughts wind up being uh, catastrophic or catastrophizing kinds of thoughts. Um, and that produces a, an enormous difficulty. So one of the things you taught us in school was the different levels of disease. So you can have a physical level of disease. You get infected by a bacteria. That's a physical level of disease. You have these right. thoughts. Is, is that a mental level disease? Is that a spirit level? Does does it matter? It's like where? Well, I what's mean, the source of these I, things? Yeah, I mean, there are emblems in the mind that repeat themselves, um, resting on whatever history we've we've had. Um, you know, like I don't have I don't have the history that's consistent with somebody who. Uh, uh, grew up in Karachi, Pakistan, you know? Right. I have mine. I have mine. And mine's mine's consistent with the places I've been, the people I've had contact with, mm. what I've seen and heard and read, and so on. Um, but to the degree to which those thoughts run me and demand that I feel a certain way or that I think a certain way, that's not freedom. That's slavery. So on that in that sense, that's at a mental level, but sometimes those patterns can be so deeply ingrained and so severe that it drains a person's spirit and it injures a person's sense of self. Uh, and that's more on the level of a spirit kind of level of illness. I don't think spirit level illness develops on its own. I think it's a gradual process that, that of erosion that gets to that kind of level. But look, all of us have these repetitive negative patterns in our minds. Of course. Um, to whatever degree or not. Um, <laughs> excuse me. And uh, they all follow the same sort of script. The content's different, but everybody's got this these patterns in their mind because they're human. And it's a natural state of the human mind to have these kinds of things in storage. Um but recognizing that the storage is not the self is the critical element. And to the degree to which somebody can cultivate a state of being an observer to the, their own mind and just recognizing, oh, there's a thought. Oh, thanks for coming by. Thanks. I appreciate you telling me that. We talked about this yesterday, and I'm sure we'll talk about it tomorrow, but I'm busy right now. So come back tomorrow. You know, just let it go and let the next thought go and let the next thought go, because mostly they're just repetitive thoughts that we've heard before, and they're not creative. They don't create a life. So, they actually are, are all reactive to life, so it's like, whether they're reactive to external circumstances or they're reactive to internal circumstances. 
It's the, the, doesn't make any difference. The spam of the mind. It just keeps coming at you. Yeah, that's lovely. Can I use that? You may steal that. Thank you. That's really lovely. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's just, it's stuff that comes by. It's really, in, in the end, it doesn't have any meaning unless we make it mean something. Unless we <laughs> ask them. Unless you open the file. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Don't exactly. touch that. <laughs> yeah, really. Really. I mean, look, the, the, the basis of all meditational techniques cross-culturally throughout all of history is to be able to come to a peaceful place while having a mind that tells us whatever it tells us. Mm. That's it. I sat Zen meditation for many years. And when you sit in Zen meditation, there's only one thing you're doing, and that's sitting. And being an observer to your thoughts and feelings and body sensations and, you know, images from the past and beliefs and attitudes, etc. But all there is to do is to be an observer of it. And at some point, being an observer of it means that you can be free from its slavery. And that's the whole aim. And that's actually the afternoon of the workshop as well. So generating this observer, it creates some separation, yeah? And, Very good. Right. That's the perfect word. And and in that's right. And in creating some space, then we have we can allow the doctor to be imperfect. We can allow Lyme disease to be running our day. We can allow our anxiety or our bad night or lack of sleep just to be the way it is. It doesn't have to mean we stand up out of their seat in the theater and walk out. That's right. And you know something, it's interesting the way you're saying that. It, it brings to mind the following, that um, no matter what goes through and, and sort of marches across the screen of our consciousness, <clears throat> we still have every moment of our lives the possibility of creating our life as, as we wish through our own intentions. That doesn't mean, you know, I'm suddenly I'm going to become a skydiver tomorrow. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how we relate to our world both our external world and our internal world. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But can you, I think we're speaking a little bit in code here. Can you yeah. say that in a way, can you bring it back down to kindergarten level? Yeah, it Let's comes see. down to a couple of very simple principles. One, if you have repetitive thoughts, and I don't mean like obsessive thoughts, I'm not talking about that order of magnitude necessarily. <clears throat> if you have, if anybody has repetitive thoughts or repetitive patterns of thoughts, for example, you know, I hate the doctor; he ruined my life. Right, and that's a, that runs again and again. That repetitive, those repetitive thoughts are merely thoughts, and so the mantra is: if you've heard it before, guess which side of the mind is talking. It's the it's that part which doesn't have to determine a future. It all rests on the past. It's all a narrative based on the past, and it doesn't have to determine the future. So the the key there to just hammer the point is the repetitive nature ought to be at first alert that whatever is running through the thought process through our cognition is not to be our commander. It's not to be our taskmaster or our slave master. It's a thought. Thanks for coming by. I appreciate the input. I'm busy right now. Come back later. 
Um, and then what are you going to do? How are you going to act? What are you going to create in your life? Um, and it's really, it, it sounds simple enough. It takes practice, but anything takes practice. Any, any, to become a, a proficient at anything takes practice. I mean, shoot, we, we practiced walking before we could walk. We fell down a lot, you know? We, we forget we practice, I believe. We think, uh, I think uh, our, our, yeah. our relationship to ourselves, this is one of my areas of interest. Our relation to ourselves is at some point we arrived in consciousness and competency and we call it natural born talent. And then we coast for the rest of our lives. And I can buy that to break out of that, like the doctors breaking out of having a personal crisis and to begin to something and to get to the level of to begin something new and to get to the level of stumbling around like your grandchildren do learning to walk is not a place where human beings like to go. Yeah, I I agree with you, McKay. Um, However, and at the same time, this what we're what you and I are talking about here can apply to someone who's been uh, apparently injured or wounded in some way in a in a physician patient kind of relationship, or it can it can be in a marriage, it can be parents and children. But the bottom line is not so much what the form is that it went through, but rather it's a life skill to be able to let that go. It's not like it's you require it for a given situation and then you don't use it. It's a life skill. And it is promotive of a, a serious level of peace and peacefulness. Yeah, that's, um, that's brilliant. And some people are practiced in that and were just born into a family where they practice that, I would say. And then some. Yeah, I want you to show. I want you to show me the three people on the planet for whom that was true. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think they have very famous old books written about them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, it's it's a skill that most people never take on in their lives. Huh. But it's a skill that the, that can be acquired. It's a skill that can be learned. It's a skill that can be applied. It's a skill that can be mastered. And it doesn't take any special equipment. All it takes is being human yeah. and being willing to learn and persevere. And it can be done. It might take a very long time. Right. But listen, what other game are you going to play? Right. You know, if you're a human being and you've got this, this part of your own self that seems to be almost like an enemy, what, else, what other game are you going to play other than that begin to have a good relationship with it? There's nothing else to do except succumb or be bitter. Um, so and how much fun is what, that? What is it? Um, yeah, that's, that's no fun. So what does it take in order to do that? You have to know the mechanics. You have to understand the dynamics that happen in the mind and what uh, patterns are in the mind. And why, when I say the mind, I mean all of us. It's the same for everyone. Just everybody's got different content. You, me, whoever is listening to this. It's always the same. Just content's different. And that's because we all have human nervous systems. And we all have left brain function because most of this is rooted in the left brain. Um, so recognizing that it's part of our human journey 
to learn how to live well with it. Uh, you know, I, I've nicknamed this part of ourselves the dark side. It's just an easy handle. It is. Because mostly the, the, the thoughts are dark. Yes. They're negative or, or catastrophic even. Um, so to learn well, to, to learn to live well with the dark side, seems like the most amazing endeavor possible because it's going to be there whether we want it to be or not. You know, there's no way to get rid of those, those patterned thoughts because they're supposed to be there for survival capabilities. Otherwise, you'd forget what fire is. You know, you <laughs> stick your hand, you stick your hand in the fireplace, or you know, you walk off a cliff. Every, or, every day, know, right? Every day, What's... every day would be a danger without the the securing of certitude about things. But at the same time, that certitude can leave out the possibility of freedom. Right. Jack, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate it very, very much. And well, it's a joy to speak with you. Yes, likewise. And in in closing, I have uh, one final question: If someone were to begin a practice of beginning to be an observer and let go, what would you recommend? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because it's really very, very simple. So here's what there is to do. And I recommend this to my patients all the time. Meditation. But most people think, oh, you know, I'm supposed to sit and contemplate my navel for an hour. But I'm not in favor of long sessions of meditation. I know this much, that by the time anybody gets past a few minutes, at the, at the least, um, they're already thinking about what, they're, what they should be doing instead of sitting around on their behind or they're distracted by their body, how their body feels or what they remember from yesterday or, you know, the shopping list that they didn't make or the phone call they forgot to return. That sounds like my meditations, so, yeah. Yeah, there, there you go. So I actually recommend to people that they meditate no longer than 30 to 60 seconds. Wow. And the, re the reason for that is that anybody can meditate for 30 to 60 seconds without being distracted, without being, you know, blissed by the the flood of thoughts about this, that, and the other. So um, during that and, 30, 60 and I, seconds, you're just paying attention to your own thoughts? What are you? I, well, that that's the state is to be an observer to whatever shows up. Okay. So whether it's thoughts, whether it's body sensations, but I actually recommend to people that they follow their breath uh. with what I call their mind's eyes. So in other words, you just you attend your consciousness to the in and out of the breath. And there's a, a place at the end of each in-breath and at the end of each out-breath where the direction reverses. You know, you take a breath in, and at some point, it's like a pendulum. At some point, the breath turns and goes in the opposite direction. Well, at the place where it turns, everything comes to a stop. And it's silent and quiet and still. And that's what I recommend that people do. They sit for very brief periods, they follow their breath and they try to enter that space, that gap between in-breath and out-breath and out-breath and in-breath. And it's, an, it's a matter of accumulating the experience of having that experience over time that allows people to become, become more and more familiar with it at will. 
and it is achievable. Like I said, anybody can meditate for 30 to 60 seconds and pay attention to the breath and recognize that the breath turns and that there's a silent and still place at the end of each in-breath and at the end of each out-breath. And that space is a space of quiet and, and stillness and peace because nothing's going on. There's no, no movement. There's nothing happening. It's all quiet. And that's a, that's a gateway to peace. And the more we have that experience, the more we can generate that experience for ourselves. Brilliant. It's a very old technique, by the way. That technique goes back at easily 5,000 years. And not the 60-second part, I think, though. Oh, yeah, not the, not the 30 <laughs> to 60-second part. That, that's mine. <laughs> but the, te- the technique itself mm-hmm. is very is really ancient. Yeah. But I think, you know, look, we're, we live very busy lives, and we're bombarded with sensory input. Um, and so people don't have a lot of stillness in them to start with. Right. And cultivating that stillness means getting past the noise. Uh, but the noise has tremendous persistence. So that's why I recommend these really short meditations. And mind you, you can do it multiple times a day. Right. That's but a brilliant part. As far as duration, very short. Yeah. Very, very short. Well, it's interesting because I'm very curious at the risk of going down another, uh, a whole other thing. And how the the iPhone and these mobile phones have changed our our brains one more time. One of my favorite stories is Peter Drucker, the the management consultant, talks about his uh, predecessors, his ancestors, living in Holland as printers, and for generations upon generations upon generations, nothing changed in the technology. So the father would teach the son, the son would teach the next son, and so forth and so on over hundreds of years, and they would be taught the exact same process in printing. Right. And now my wife wakes up and she goes to work and Google has updated Google Mail, and it blows her day because she's got to learn something new. Right. And makes her insane. So the 60-second part is brilliant. You know, it's interesting because we talk about these things as disruptive technologies. Yes. And what's usually meant by that is that it disrupts the status quo and it has um, a positive spin to it. You're like, well, you know, you're going to advance to this and then you're going to advance to that and advance to that. And it's going to be an onward and upward march of expanding technological capabilities. However, it's really a double entendre because what's disrupted is people's sense of ease. Yes. That's really, I hadn't thought of that before. It's, it's absolutely, as you said, as you said, you know, update software. It's like, what are you kidding me? I got to learn this whole new thing. Right. But it's supposed to be better for me to have my life messed up. Exactly. She says, I just (laughs) want to check my, I just want to read my email. Don't help me. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Right. So, you know, these very short bursts, um, you know, at the risk of sounding trite, you know, there's an old story about some guy who's never been in New York City before. He goes to New York and he's in Manhattan with all the hustle bustle. And he sees some guy that he's pretty sure is a New Yorker. And he walks up to him and says, excuse me, 
how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the response the guy gives back to him is, practice, practice, practice. Yeah. So <laughs> getting to our own Carnegie Hall means we have to practice. Yeah. Brilliant. All right, Jack. Thank you again. It's fun to listen to two acupuncturists talk craft, really. Talk shop, huh? Yeah. You enjoyed that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, you should have been around some of the tables at school when you have 12 of us going at it. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, at times we got a little bit esoteric, I would think, <laughs> yes. All right. If you have any feedback for us, please send us an email. At feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can also visit our website. For links and show notes at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Or Stitcher. And check back with us next week. We have an interview with Sarah Ballantyne. She's if you don't know, massive in the paleo world. She has cookbooks out. She has an incredible blog and website. Uh, she has a background as a researcher with inflammatory diseases. And you really need to know what she has to say about diet and what it can do from your health. And the last item on today's to-do list is the ninja fact of the day. Aurora? Ninjas don't read books. They stare at them until they get the information they want. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.